0: Hi, my name is Jonathan. I am one of the pastors here at Heights, and we're so glad that you found us online. You know, at Heights, it is our desire to love and lead all people to a new life with Christ. And one of the ways that we strive to do that is by posting weekly content at all of the places, on Facebook and on YouTube, on Instagram. We even have our own website where we're constantly posting things as well. If you're checking us out for the first time, you can go to heightschurch.org connect and let us know that you found us. And once again, we're so glad that you're here. Coming to Mark chapter 12. Uh, it is the final week of the life of Jesus. Uh, Mark chapter 11 takes place on Sunday. And so Mark chapter 12 is going to be sometime, maybe Monday, late Monday, early Tuesday. But what happens in Mark 12 is really important because in Mark chapter 11, as Pastor Matt uh, mentioned earlier, that is the time where Jesus came into the temple and said, Listen, you guys are making this about something that is not supposed to be about. You are blocking the Gentiles from coming into the temple. You're blocking those with special needs and disabilities from worshiping the Lord. And he begins to forcibly overturn the money tables and run people out of the temple. Well, that was really, I think, the, the final straw that broke the camel's back between the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. And now the Pharisees are like, we really need to get rid of this guy. But the problem the Pharisees are in is this, they can't assassinate him, they they can't kill him, because of the popularity of Jesus. So if they do that, now they've got all the Jewish people who are following him, that's going to have an uprising. But then they're also in the pickle of the more popular Jesus gets, the more threat that Caesar and the Roman empire can see Jesus. And they think, well, he's here to set up a political kingdom. So let's send the army in and we'll just squelch this whole thing. And so the Pharisees are like, what do we do? We know we got to get rid of him, but how do we get rid of him? So they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to trip him up. We'll try to get him to blaspheme God. We'll try to get him to break the law. And then if we can do that, then we can bring charges against him, and maybe that's the way we can get him out of the scene. So in Mark chapter 12, what you have is essentially that, them trying to trap Jesus with a bunch of different questions. Now, understand this about questioning God, because sometimes people are like, is it okay to ask God questions? Is it okay if I question God? Well, I think it's okay to ask God questions, but the real you know, question is, what's your motivation for it? Why are you asking him the questions? You know, for them, they were asking the questions to try to you know, put a slight on the character of Jesus. You and I in our lives, as we question God, we have questions for God, we need to look at what's the heart motivation of those questions. Am I asking the question to say, Lord, I want to know this answer, so I better know you, I better love you, and I can better follow you. Here in chapter 12, it's like, no, 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 we're trying to trap you. And here's what you're going to see out of this chapter. And I think it's so important. And if you've got anything you want to write down on your notes app on your phone, or you, you got a pen out, uh, you can write this down. Because this is, I, I mean, this right here is really a, something you and I need to ask ourselves. And we need to remember this morning. And it's this, being close to the kingdom of God, it's not good enough. It's not good enough to be close to the kingdom. In order to be saved, you have to be in the kingdom of God. All right? so it's two different things. It's not good enough just to be close to God's kingdom. In order to be saved, you have to be in God's kingdom. So what you're going to see is Jesus, as he interacts with them, is going to do what Jesus does, and he's going to flip the script on him, and he's going to expose the sin of the Pharisees in this chapter, and thus, I think, exposing our sin as well As we work through this text, this may look into your life as I had to pray through this in my life this week and say, Lord, where do I see myself in this text? Where do I see my sin coming out just like their sin? And the good news is when God shows us that sin, he shows us a way right back to the Savior and the one that forgives us. So the first one you see is the sin of selfishness. It's the sin of selfishness. When you pick up in verse 1, you see that Jesus in Mark 12:1 begins to talk to them in parables. And he tells this parable about a, a man who had a vineyard. And he planted this vineyard. And then he, after he plants the vineyard, he goes away. And he says, okay, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to lease out the vineyard to some tenants. And so these tenants are taking care of the vineyard. And then over time, the owner of the vineyard said, I want some fruit from my vineyard. I want to see how it's going. So I'm going to send some servants. So he begins sending servants. And in Mark chapter 12, you can start scanning verses three through four. And it says that each time he sent a servant, they either beat the servant or they killed the servant. So then the owner finally says, okay, well, I've got a son and I'm going to send my son and surely they will respect my son. Now let's pick up in verse 7. It said, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus says in verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What is happening in this parable, it's real simple to understand. The owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants is Israel. The servants that kept being sent are the Old Testament prophets. The son is Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm exposing your sin of selfishness because God has said, I'm the Messiah that he's well-pleased in me. Listen to me. But they are selfish in wanting to make their own Messiah, their own Savior, just like you and I are sometimes. That's a sin we all battle. God, I want to form you in my own image. God, I want you to do what I want you to do when I want it done. Lord, I don't like the way you did this. You should have done it this way. And Jesus is saying no. No. You can't reject me as Savior in order to be in the kingdom because God has said, listen to me. Well, you know how well that went, don't you? I mean, they were like, all right, Jesus, woohoo, I'm glad you came here and we had church today. No. Verse 12, sadly, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that they had told the parable against them so they left him and went away and so the first sin is that sin of selfishness don't fall into that trap of rejecting the one and God has said listen to the second sin that he exposes is the sin of hypocrisy and so in verse 13 when he pick up in verse 13 we begin to see the sin of hypocrisy and so they sent some to him to Jesus uh, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, let's stop right here because uh, we need to understand what's happening uh, when these two groups they get together. The Pharisees and the Herodians uh, were, were religious and political enemies. They did not like each other. All right. Modern day terms Democrats, Republicans. All right. They have formed an alliance, they have formed bipartisanship. They have lived out the old proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. All right? That's them right here. We don't like each other, but we both know we don't like this guy, so we're going to team up to get rid of him. So then they ask Jesus this question Hey, Jesus, is it okay to pay taxes? What do we do about the taxes? And here's why that question's really interesting because they're trying to put Jesus again in a trap. Because if Jesus says, nope, don't pay taxes, then the Jewish leaders can go to the Romans and go, hey, you know, this Jesus guy who's becoming real, real popular, he's out here now telling the Jewish people not to pay taxes. He's no friend of Caesar's. You guys need to go do something about him, all right? So if he goes, hey, no, nope, don't pay taxes. But then the Jews didn't like the tax. So if he says, pay the tax, Jewish people had a problem with that because for the Jews, every time they paid the tax, it was a reminder that the Romans were in control. But some Jews believed that the tax was actually idol worshiping based on the inscription on the coin of the denarius. So let's pick up in verse 14 and see what Jesus does. So they came to him and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But notice verse 15, and here's the sin that he exposes. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one, And he said to them, whose likeness in ascription is this? They said to him, Caesar. Now here's what Jesus says, and it's absolutely profound. So he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so Jesus here reminds them, I'm not here to build a political kingdom. I'm here to build my church my kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. So, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and that which is God to God. So, pay your taxes. Be good citizens, right? So, when we apply this modern day, we can ask a lot of questions of what does this mean for us as Christians in the way we relate to our governments, Whether it is a government of democracy, whether it's a totalitarianism run by a dictator, how do Christians relate to an authority above them in government? And honestly, we could probably spend several sermons just answering that question. I'm going to answer it in five minutes or less, okay? Because I'm going to give you some homework, and here's your homework. Go read Romans 13 go read 1 Timothy 2, go read 1 Peter 2. Some of you didn't write that down, so I'm going to trust your memory, but just in case you are writing and your pen ran out of ink for a second, I'll say it again. Here's your homework. Go read Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2. What you're going to find in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 is how we relate to our governments. 1 Timothy 2, how we pray for our leaders. But you and I, as we're working through that in a modern-day context of how we relate, we need to remember a couple of things. Number one, we as Christians have responsibility to our government in which we uphold our government as long as it does not interfere with our worship of God. Right? So pay your taxes as much as you don't want to and don't like to. Okay, That's our responsibility. Secondly, we need to remember this, that as believers in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, our citizenship is the citizenship of the kingdom of God, not in which a nation we live. God's kingdom triumphs everything. And we first and foremost are believers in that kingdom and not just a nation. So that means this, our true independence day is not July 4th marked by a flag. As believers in Jesus Christ, our true Independence Day is Easter Sunday marked by a cross in an empty tomb. That's our independence. That's the kingdom in which we belong, first and foremost. Therefore, our passion as believers in Jesus Christ, as we relate to our government, as we pay our taxes, as we follow leadership, as we're respectful, as we pray, is to build the kingdom of God, not just a nation. Because our citizenship belongs to Christ. But as we unpack all of that, Don't miss the point of verses 14 through 17. The sin in which Jesus exposed was found in verse 15. It's the sin of hypocrisy. That's where you and I will struggle the most. We won't struggle as much in relating to a government besides relating to one another and to God. Because we all have the sin of hypocrisy within us. We want to point out the sin in someone else. We want to try to hunt for their sin without first looking in our own lives, Jesus says don't fall into that trap. Because you can be close to the kingdom, but that's not good enough to be just close to the kingdom of God. To be saved means to be in the kingdom of God well, you would have thought they would have give Jesus a, a breath. I mean, he has already told this parable about selfishness. He's told a parable here about hypocrisy, but oh no, there's another group that comes. And this group that comes is the Sadducees. And this is the third sin that's going to be exposed, the sin of rejecting God's word. And so we pick up in verse 18 and you see this group called the Sadducees came to him and they said that there is no resurrection. And what they're going to battle is the sin of rejecting God's word. Now, understand this about the Sadducees. The Sadducees is a really small group. They don't hold a lot of influence or political power among the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, actually, after 70 AD, when the Romans come in and, and conquer the, and destroy the temple, the Sadducees kind of fall off the annals of history. You don't hear any more about them. But they're a group that only believes in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Torah. The Torah. They are not looking for a Messiah. They reject there is a future resurrection. They reject the immortality of the soul. They do not believe in angels. This is an interesting group. And so this is a group that was sad, you see, when Jesus rose from the grave. Okay? Now you can remember that. Some of you are writing that down, and that was, yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's a good reaction there, Brad. Just a nice, huh. I'm with you, brother. I don't know who said that to me at one point, but sadly it stuck, and now it's going to stick with you. And I don't know where I'm going from here, but I will recover here in a moment. (laughs) And so in verse 18, they come to Jesus and they say, look, we don't think there's a resurrection. And Jesus, we've got a question for you. And here is the question, verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the must, he must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Okay, so you got it? The law says if, you know, they're married and he dies and there's no kid, then she needs to marry the next brother. Jesus is like, you know, between verses 19 and 20, Jesus goes, yep, that's exactly what it says. So then they give Jesus this little silly scenario in verses 20 through 23, and they go, okay, well, that's the way it says. What happens if that happens seven times, right? What if she ends up marrying the seven brothers all because they each keep dying and she's got to keep remarrying? So, ha ha, Jesus, here comes your question Who is she married to in heaven? Because she had seven husbands here on the same family tree here on earth. Well, Jesus says this in verse 24. Jesus said, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Okay? So here's their sin. They're rejecting the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures talk about a resurrection. It talks about the power of God. You, you've rejected the Bible and you don't know the power of God. Because verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven as far as the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac. He's not the God of the dead, but he is of the God of the living. So Jesus reminds them, guys, listen, you're falling into the sin of rejecting my word because my word says there is a resurrection. This God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Friends, don't fall into the trap of rejecting God's word because there's times it doesn't match with your narrative or what you want it to say. Now, when we come into verse 25, there are some things we need to probably uh, explain out and and quite honestly clean up a little bit here because sometimes in in our our Christian thinking, we, we get a little things backwards about heaven. And so if you'll allow me, let me meddle in that for a moment. First, number one, we are not married in heaven, and there's, there's no marriage in heaven. Um, the, the spouse you have here, you are, you are with that spouse until death does you part. That's the covenant in which you enter into in marriage. But then notice also something in verse 25, and, and we, we quite honestly get this, I think, a little backwards in, in our uh, theology often, is he says we will be like the angels. We will not be angels in heaven, okay? We are like them, but we will not be angels in heaven. So, at this point in the message, you can lovingly turn to the person who came with you and say this, you are no angel here on this earth, and you will be no angel in heaven, all right? You are like the angel, but you will not be an angel in heaven. Now, for some, that seems super discouraging, wait a minute, the the spouse I have I won't be married to in heaven? Well, listen, we will know each other. I believe the Bible clearly teaches we will know each other. We will have relationships with each other. We'll have friendships with each other. But think about how the angels relate. The angels relate perfectly. Think of the angels' worship of God. The angels' worship of God is perfect. So what is Jesus pointing us to? That all our relationships within heaven and all of our worship within heaven is perfect. A perfect relationship. Can you imagine that? Being with someone that watches the TV at a perfect volume all the time? (laughs) Perfectly worshiping and loving God with no other alternative motives? Doing what the seraphim and the cherubim were doing in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah had the vision of coming around the throne of God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of oh God almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. That's our future. To be able to relate to one another that way. To worship in God that way. In sheer perfection without the presence of sin in our lives or anywhere for all of eternity. Folks, sign me up for that. That's heaven. I mean, it's, we will not be disappointed for one second in heaven. Why is that possible? Why is it possible for you and I to one day and experience that in heaven, for all of eternity? Because Jesus said this to them, and I'll point you back to verse 26. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Okay, so you Sadducees only say the first five books of the Bible count? Well, I'll take you back to one of those. I'll take you back to Moses. Take you back to Exodus 3 and the burning bush. You remember that passage about the bush? How God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You guys remember that? Yeah, yeah, we remember that. And Jesus would say something like this. Because when he said that, when God said that to Moses, it's in the present tense. So when God comes to Moses and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is saying, even though they have died centuries before you, Moses, I am still relating to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. I'm still their God. Why? How? Because they're with me in heaven, and I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. That means this, in your sin, you are separated from God, but it is Christ Jesus that is our mediator who brings us to God, and now in a relationship with him all here on earth, death never separates you. This is what Romans 8 would say is a bond and a love and a relationship that even for one nanosecond is never separated because He is the God of the living. Amen? But don't fall into the trap of rejecting that news because it's not good enough just to be close to the kingdom of God. In order to be saved, you have to be in His kingdom. And that brings us to the fourth and final question of the chapter. And it's this, he's going to expose the sin of shallowness. We've seen the sin of selfishness, the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of rejection. But now we run into this sin of shallowness. In verse 28, one of the scribes comes up to Jesus, and he's been hearing this dispute among the religious leaders. Jesus has really gotten them stirred up. And Jesus says, listen, you've answered them well, but Jesus, just answer me this one last thing and we'll let you go. Verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? Which which commandment? Out of the 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible, which one do I need to keep? This is just kind of the baseline question. Can we just sum this all up so we can go home and you know, go watch some March Madness or something here, Jesus. What are, we got basketball coming on Christ. What do I just need to do to get this into the kingdom? Jesus says in verse 29 this, this is the most important. He quotes what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and verses 4 through 5, and he says the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, teacher, you are right. You have truly said this, and there's no one other besides you. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, all of your life is not about just figuring out what you can do at just a shallow level to worship me. You want to follow me? He's already said this this way. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You want to be in my kingdom? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love people just like you love yourself. You love them well just as you love yourself well. That's the requirement to be in my kingdom, Christ says. And the man says, well, yes, Jesus, you've, you've answered that well. You've, you've done a great job. And I want you to notice how Jesus ends this conversation in verse 34. And he saw this and that he had answered wisely. And he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from it. You notice he, he, he didn't tell the man you're in the kingdom. He said, you're not far. You're close, but you're not there. You know, you, you've heard the saying that you've experienced in your life, so close, but what? Yet so far away, right? You've probably experienced that in playing sports in your life. You played well, you played well, you played well, and at the end, the other team hit the winning shot. You went in the locker room, and you were like, man, we were close, but you were still so far away. Maybe it was in a job interview you walked out and you thought, man, that's my job. I'm going to get that. I'm, I'm the candidate. They're going to go with me. And then you get the phone call or the text message or the email later and said, hey, listen, you did a great job, but we went with someone else. You felt it was so close. It's still so far away. Jesus says, listen, it's not good to just be close to the kingdom. In order to be saved, you have to be in the kingdom. But how then are we in the kingdom? How then are we saved? And here's the good news, is whatever sin that has been exposed in this text in your life, whether it's the sin of shallowness or hypocrisy or rejection or selfishness, here's the good news. You have a Savior in Jesus who has brought the kingdom near to you. See, you may be close. You may feel like it's far. But Christ is saying, no, no, no. What I do is I bring it near. I come to you. As you're running from me. Because in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news of me, of who I am and my person and my work. So as you're running from God, Christ is bringing that kingdom near to you. And in order to get into the kingdom, you repent, you turn around and you come into his kingdom by faith. You place your faith and your trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Faith is a really just fancy term that we use in church, and it means to trust. You exercise faith every day if you take a prescription pill. Every day you're putting your faith in the work of the pharmacist that they put the right pill in the right bottle with the right dose and the right label. Every time you drive and you're at a, uh, a stoplight when your light is red and now it turns green, you're placing your faith in the work of the driver to then on the other side of the road to stop at their red light. But here's the thing. The pharmacist will one day get the pill wrong. The driver will run the red light. Those people, when you place your faith in them, will let you down. But in Christ Jesus, he won't. In Christ, he says, whoever calls on my name shall not be put to shame but will come into my kingdom. And so maybe this morning you feel like you're close but you're not in. The way you get in is through Christ to turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in Him. Maybe you are in the kingdom of God. You are a believer in Jesus but right now you lack joy. You lack kind of being on fire for Christ. You know there's something you are missing. And let me point it to this this morning. Maybe there is repentance for you. Because there is a sin of selfishness, there's a sin of shallowness, there's a sin of hypocrisy in your life today. And the Bible says to you as believers and to me that in Acts 3:19 that when we repent And we turn back to the Lord that times of refreshing may come upon us again through the Holy Spirit. And so maybe today as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where you are. You are in the kingdom, but you know right now there's something missing. And it could it be that sin that's just been unchecked that you need to turn from and say, Lord, forgive me. And Lord, bring refreshing and revival in my life again. Being close to the kingdom its not good enough. In order to be saved, you have to be in his kingdom. i want to invite you to bow and pray with me right where you are. I want to thank you for joining us and watching today's message. And I want to just go over a quick story with you that's a really important story in the Bible, and it means a lot to me it's about a man by the name of Nicodemus and see Nicodemus was a guy who pretty much grew up going to church all his life and one night he comes to Jesus and it's late in the evening and he sits down with Jesus and he essentially asks him a question Jesus how do I go to heaven how do I get into the kingdom of God and Jesus responds in John chapter 3 that you have to be born again now Nicodemus asks a very practical question we all would think well how in the world can someone be physically born twice But Jesus wasn't talking about a second physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth, that you have to be born again. See, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that without Christ, our spirits are dead. that we're not able to worship God and love God and honor God. But then when we come to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives, Jesus helps us to be born again. He gives us new birth and our spirits come alive. And so Ephesians chapter two, again, then says, then by grace, you have been saved. It's not a work of yourself. It's the work of Jesus in your life. But listen, that has to be received. You have to receive that gift of grace in your life and believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life. As simply put it this way, did Jesus do everything he possibly could do to save you on the cross? Or is there something else out there? Is he the only way or are there are other ways? You know, the way to be saved is to say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And friend, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus forgives you of all your sin, past, present, and future. And when you die, one day he will take you to be with him in heaven. And so when you think about the wonderful promises of Jesus, I want to encourage you today right where you are to receive them and believe in him. And so if you are ready to do that today, let's just bow in prayer. And I'm gonna encourage you in your heart today to mean these words, because this is what God says, that when we believe in our hearts that Jesus has died on the cross for us, that we can be saved. So would you pray with me? You can simply say, dear God, today I believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm placing my faith and trust in Him, in Him alone. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and one day taking me to heaven to be with you forever. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Friend, I want to thank you so much today for watching our message and encourage you, if you've prayed today to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, please let us know so we can come alongside of you and encourage you, help you take your next step of faith. You can connect with us at our website, heightschurch.org slash connect. You can even leave a comment here on this YouTube page. And we'll be in touch with you because we want to just come alongside of you and help you take that next step of faith. So until next time, thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you soon.